welcome to that of Ed's uh, earlier in the service. A very, very warm uh, welcome uh, to all of you. As the vicar here, I want to extend uh, a warm welcome to anybody who's uh, perhaps not been here before. I see some friends from uh, London who I don't think you've been here before, but it's great to have you. Uh, it really is. Now, you, if you like these things, uh, you hopefully will have found, if you've got one of these, you will have found in it one of these, which is an outline of the sermon. And um, if you want to follow where we're going, um, then look out for that blue sheet on two sides and uh, that will help you to see where we're going in the next few moments. Uh, You might also like to take up your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 6, page 1128 is the page number. And uh, this is a little series we're looking at over the summer, uh, the Gospel according to. Last week we looked at the Gospel according to Philip, the week before that Andrew, this week it's the Gospel according to Paul. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. The media described the summer of 2001 as the summer of discontent. Do you remember it? Uh, We witnessed some of the worst rioting the UK had seen in 20 years in Oldham, Burnley and Bradford. I've been practising how to say Bradford. That's how you say it up here, isn't it? Indeed, uh, Bradford was described as a city in fear in a report into race relations written by Lord Owsley. Do you remember those days? Uh, Seven years later, 2008 could well be described as a summer of discontent as well. The credit crunch has well and truly taken hold. The price of a barrel of oil has gone through the roof, resulting in fuel prices at record levels. The government are paying the price with huge losses in by-elections. Confidence in the Prime Minister has largely disappeared. Financial institutions are rocky. Uh, Individuals are seriously feeling, feeling the pinch. Some have lost their jobs as companies slim down their business to cope with rising operating costs. Now, difficult as all that is, that's not the discontent I'm thinking about this evening. You see, 2008 could well be described as a summer of theological discontent. In the Anglican Communion worldwide, and in the Church of England in particular, there have been huge discussions that are sure to affect the future of the Church in this land. Uh, The recent vote in General Synod, clearing the way for women bishops in the Church of England, has resulted in many who call themselves Anglo-Catholic, suggesting that when that happens they will leave the Church of England. And then there's the Lambeth Conference, a conference that's held every ten years and led by the Archbishop of Canterbury, a gathering of Anglican bishops from all over the world which has just ended, a three-week conference. And uh, you're sure to have seen the reports on the television, in your newspapers, Uh, The reports in the media have all been of a church in crisis and a very real possibility of a split or of schism in the church. This has been a summer of theological discontent and it is very serious indeed. Now, of course, compared to the fear of living through riots or the financial hardship suffered by many as a result of the credit crunch, uh, this theological discontent seems secondary. Uh, You know, a, a minor spat amongst uh, Christians. It would be easy to be cynical and suggest that the Lambeth Conference is little more than a group of clerics in funny clothes arguing about church politics and appearing to be out of touch with modern life. I want to say to you this evening, don't be fooled. See, as we look at the Bible this evening and consider these opening verses of the book of Romans, we'll see that the issues here that are being discussed in the church today and here impinge on the deepest and most profound questions of life. The debate happening in the Anglican Church and in the Anglican Communion at the moment is not just an internal spat amongst a group of religious 
people who can't agree about church politics. It is huge. At the heart of the debate are some of the most fundamental questions of life itself. Issues that go to the very core of what it means to be a human being. Questions of identity, who am I? Questions of existence, what is life all about? Questions of destiny, what happens when I die? Uh, The reasons these discussions matter, and indeed that we will give the next uh, 25 minutes to these things, is because they are matters of life and death, eternal life and death. What happens beyond the grave matters in these discussions. This summer of theological discontent is huge then, bigger even than riots and financial insecurity. You see, where will people find the answers to life if the church doesn't seem to know the answers to the questions of life? Now look, as the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, he was dealing with those very issues too. And strikingly, as we turn just to the end of the book of Romans, if you will, with me, you'll see uh, he tells us to beware of false teaching in the church. Come with me before we look at chapter 1 to chapter 16, at the very end, page um, uh, 1143. Look what he says in chapter 16 and verse 17. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery they deceive the minds of naive people. Do you see what Paul says here? He says, beware of those who cause division. Now, Paul is established in this book. By the time he writes this, in the first 15 chapters, he is established in this great book what the gospel is. And here at the end of the book, he says that any deviation from the gospel will cause division. Now, will you please be sure to grasp this? Because it goes to the very heart of the current debate in the church. Those who depart from the gospel are the ones who cause division in the church. Please hear that. It is not holding on to the gospel and defending the gospel that causes division. It is departing from the gospel that causes division. Now it is so important that we get this right because in the current debate this is being horribly twisted. Those of us who hold on to the teaching of the Bible are being accused of causing a split in the church. Paul is very clear. It is those who refuse to hold on to the historic faith as revealed in the scriptures who cause division. Look again at chapter 16, verse 17. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Unity comes in the gospel. Genuine unity in the church comes as we hold on to the gospel as revealed in the scriptures. And it is as people depart from that that they cause division. The gospel, the authentic gospel of Christ, then is laid out for us in this great book of Romans. And this evening we're just going to look at the first six verses as the framework for Paul's gospel. So come back with me to page 1128 and to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Uh, These are great words. Did you uh, enjoy them as Joan uh, read them? Um, It's a magnificent introduction to the book as Paul lays out for his readers the source of the gospel in verse 2, 
the centre of the Gospel in verses 3 and 4 and the scope of the Gospel in verses 5 and 6. But before we look at those things, please take a look at verse 1 where we see Paul, the servant of the Gospel. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the Gospel of God. I love these opening words because they, they demonstrate the extent to which the Gospel has shaped Paul, shaping his whole identity as a human being. See, Paul actually begins the letter with just two words, Paulos doulos, Paul slave. And it is slave, not servant, as the NIV translates it. Paul, slave of Christ Jesus. There is Paul's identity. The Gospel answers the very question that human beings have asked for centuries, ever since human beings existed, and indeed still ask today, who am I? Who am I? Paul would say, Paulos doulos. Names mean a lot, don't they? When we were choosing our names for our children, we spent hours looking through books of names and their meanings. I don't know whether any of you who've ever had children did that. Spent hours looking through to try and get the right names. What did their names uh, mean? Now, names mean something today. They meant even more in Paul's day, and they are huge in the Bible. Did you know the name Paul means little? Why are you laughing? rotten lot. Now I don't know if my parents knew when they called me Paul that it meant little and I don't know if they didn't just feed me to make sure I fitted the name. Anyway, um, Paul does mean little and that's why the Apostle Paul chose the name. Do you remember he was Saul? In Judaism as Saul he was one of the great ones, one of the big ones. Uh, He'd achieved so much as a religious Jew. He he could boast a, a really very impressive track record. He was second to none when it came to his commitment to the law. Do you remember these words from Philippians chapter 3? No need to turn to them, just listen in. This is what Paul could say about himself as a Jew. Philippians chapter 3 verse 5. He says, Though I myself have reasons for, for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Zealous, faultless. Do you see what he can say of himself? In Judaism, Saul was a great one. In authority, Saul was a powerful one. He had at his command crack troops to act as a a hit squad to murder Christians. Do you remember that back in Acts chapter 8? On his command, the lives of other human beings were just being snuffed out. That's powerful. Saul was a powerful one. He was a big shot. And then he met Jesus Christ. And all that changed and he became Paul, little. Standing before Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, Saul realised he was no big person. He was just a little person. See, that's what happens when you've met the living God. When you know the almighty creator of the universe, you see yourself as you really are. The gospel does that to us. It shows me that I'm not the centre of the universe, I'm just a creature. And when I believe that, then I have the fighting chance of treating others as I should. So uh, Saul stopped killing people. Now, Paul grasped that as he met uh, Jesus Christ, you see. He was Paulos, little. He was also doulos, he was slave. See, the Gospel tells me I'm the complete possession of someone else. 
I'm here to serve Christ Jesus. And now, to understand this a bit better, come back with me to uh, Exodus chapter 21, uh, page uh, 78 and 79. Exodus chapter 21. Now, if ever you've read the Bible all the way through, if ever you've studied the book of Exodus in any way, you're, you're sure to have come across these verses. I wonder if you've ever looked at them as being quite strange. They are, in fact, pointing towards how we should be in Christ Jesus. Exodus chapter 21. They're great verses. Look at verse 2 of Exodus 21. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone, but if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But listen to this. If the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and don't want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be the servant for life. See what this is saying? In Jewish law, if you were bought as a slave and then after six years had a chance to go free, you could actually choose to remain a slave for life. Why would anyone want to do that, you say? Well, if your master was a good man, if he was one who, who looked after you, who cared for you and your family, why would you want to go anywhere else if you were safe with him? Now, isn't that exactly how it is for the Christian? I have been brought at a price. And what a huge price it was. Jesus paid the price for me, not by handing over a wad of cash, but by handing over his life, by dying on a cross. And as I look at the cross, not only do I see how much he paid, but how much he loves me. And anyone who's a Christian knows what a wonderful master he is, a master who died for me. I can't want for a better master than that. He is the one who loves me and cares me more than anyone else in the world. Why would I want to go anywhere else? And so the Christian is the one who has said in Exodus chapter 21 verse 5, I love my master and I don't want to go free. I want to be his forever. See, the Christian is someone who's chosen to be a slave. And it is a brilliant choice to make. Because the choice is, the truth is, we're all slaves to something. None of us are free. We like to think we're free. None of us are free men. Everyone serves something or someone, whether it's our career or our appetite, our dreams or ourself. We're all serving something. We can do nothing better than to choose to serve Jesus. He is the best master of all. Now, you see, Paul knew that. That's what he did. And so in Romans 1, back in Romans 1, verse 1, he says, I'm a little person, I'm a nobody. And yet even as a little person, even as a no one, even as, as Paul, he had great dignity because Jesus the Christ, God's king in God's world, died for him. I've chosen to be his slave. I'm a slave of the king, he says. Now, if you're a Christian here, let me ask you, is that how you think of yourself? See, on the whole, in middle-class Britain, people uh, find their identity in their employment. I know that I do, so when I meet someone, I shake them by the hand and I say, I'm Paul, I'm a vicar. My wife says, I'm Caroline, I'm a nurse, or, or I'm a housewife. What do you say? I'm a doctor, I'm an accountant, I'm, I'm a student, I'm a... 
Ask Paul who he is, and he says, Paul Doulos, I'm a little person, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm a nobody who's been gloriously saved by Christ. I am his servant, I'm here to serve him by proclaiming the gospel to others, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Isn't that wonderful? That's why this gospel is so important. It gives us our identity. That's what we're fighting for in this debate in the Church of England at the moment. Our very identity. The servant of the gospel. Secondly, the source of the gospel in verses 1 and 2. It is the gospel of God. It is God's gospel. Do you see it there at the end of verse 1? The gospel of God. That's why we have no right to change it. Indeed, how outrageous it is if we do try to change it. It is not our gospel, it is his gospel. But that is exactly what is happening in the debate in the Anglican Church at the moment. People in in positions of great authority are trying to change the gospel. Isn't that outrageous? Now, look, to, to try and get this, let's uh, just grasp the difference between theology and philosophy. This isn't complicated, it's very straightforward. The difference between theology and philosophy. Philosophy is human beings' ideas about life, the universe and everything. So we philosophise whether we realise we're doing it or not when we have a pipe down the pub with our mates and discuss the meaning of life. And it's great fun. Or we can do philosophy at university, and I don't know whether that's fun or not, but at the end of the day, whether it's down the pub or in the university, philosophy is my thoughts or your thoughts, Plato, Kant or Nietzsche's thoughts. They might be great thoughts, but they are still human beings' thoughts about the world, the universe and everything and God. Christians do not claim to be great philosophers. In fact, we don't claim to be philosophers at all, necessarily, because we don't claim to have thought up anything about God. No, the Christian believes that God has revealed himself in the Gospel. See, at the end of verse 1, it is the Gospel of God. It's not my Gospel, not my thoughts, it is God's Gospel. That's what this letter is about. This is the Gospel of God. And so when we remain rooted in the gospel, we know what is at the heart of God's plans for the world and therefore what we should make our priority as well. What is my life all about? You see the questions we ask in life? What is my life all about? Here's the answer. Here's the answer in the Bible. Because God has revealed it. That's why the discussions at the Lambeth Conference are so much more than a little side issue that the church is interested in. The source of the gospel is God. Secondly, the source of the gospel is the scriptures. Do you see it there, verse 1? End of verse 1. Set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. See, the source of the gospel is to be found in the Holy Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And so if we hear someone preaching something which is divergent from the Scriptures, we should not listen to it. That's what the Church of England has always believed. Since I was preparing this, I looked up the, um, the articles of religion in, in the Book of Common Prayer, the 39 articles at the back of the, uh, the Book of Common Prayer. Just listen to these, they're fantastic. This is what the, the Church of England has always believed. Article 6. Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. 
so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. See, we're saying everything we need is in the Scriptures. Everything for salvation that we need is in the Scriptures. Don't need anything else. Don't need to go anywhere else. Listen to Article 20. Uh, The Church has power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority and controversies of faith, and yet it is not lawful for the Church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's Word written. Neither may it so expound one place of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. Isn't that good? The church can't make up the rules. The church can't decide something that is contrary to what is already written in God's word. The church can't take one bit of the Bible and explain it in a way that it doesn't make sense with another part of the Bible. Anglicans have always believed the scriptures are our final authority on all things. It's absolutely fundamental. And yet the reason there is so much confusion in the Anglican communion at the moment is because so many in positions of of leadership don't believe this. So the Archbishop of Canterbury has said that, and I quote, truth is not in the possession of any one party within the church, but can only be found through sustained dialogue with one another, end of quote. Do you hear that? Truth can only be found through sustained dialogue with one another. What nonsense! The Archbishop of Canterbury believes we will discover the truth as we walk together, as we talk together. Philosophy. And so he asked bishops to, quote, share in the search for the divine, end of quote. Where's God? Should we have a search? (laughs) See, it's as if the truth about God and his ways are not known, and that discussion... Discussion is the way to knowledge. But verse 2 is clear. The gospel has been revealed through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we saw it last week in Acts chapter 8, didn't we? When uh, we saw the, uh, the Philip meeting the Ethiopian official. Uh, the Ethiopian official riding on his chariot, reading Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah 53. Uh, and what did Philip say? What does it say? Philip went up to him and beginning with that very passage of Scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is here in the scriptures. Here is the source of the truth. It's not discussion that will lead us into knowledge of the truth. It's in reading this book. But I have to tell you, Rome Williams doesn't believe that. And he is actually derisory to any who do, even though any who do are actually just being authentic Anglicans. Which is why he said the truth is not in the possession of any one party within the church. That was a pop at those of us who hold the scriptures and say this is where truth has been revealed. See, here is the heart of the debate that is going on right now in the Anglican Communion. The bishops are trying to discover truth, but truth has already been revealed in the scriptures. There is no discovery to be made. How tragic that many of the senior leaders in the Church of England don't know where truth is found. They're on a search when it's right under their nose. And how tragic for ordinary people who want to know the truth, and certainly people I speak to and you speak to, I'm sure as well, are saying, what is life all about? They want to find the truth 
And then they come to churches only to be told that the church doesn't know where to find the truth. The best we can suggest is that we talk together and share in the search for the divine. Friends, it is pathetic. One, the servant of the gospel. Secondly, the source of the gospel. Third, the centre of the gospel. Verses three and four. The centre of the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus. Look, these things might seem so obvious, but you see, senior churchmen don't get it. Verse three regarding his son. From verse 1, Gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. Jesus is at the very centre of the gospel. Indeed, as if to illustrate it, Paul can barely write a sentence in these first six verses without referring to Jesus. Did you notice this? He comes in every verse. Verse 1, Paul serves Christ Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. Verse 4, Jesus is designated Son of God because he's been raised from the dead. Verse 4, Jesus is the Lord of the church. Verse 5, Jesus is the one by whom and for whom all all nations are summoned. Verse 6, when people respond to the gospel, they belong to Jesus. Verse 7, Jesus, along with the Father, is the source of all spiritual grace and peace. You can't miss it, can you? Six verses, just the first six or seven verses. It's all about Jesus. He is the centre of the gospel. He is the object of the gospel because he is what life is all about. See, when you and I have met Jesus, we've we've discovered the meaning of life. That's why this debate matters. It is about the meaning of life. What did Jesus himself say? I am the light of the world. He wasn't just saying, I can shed light on, on the world. I mean, all sorts of people can try and do that. No, I am the light of the world. You want to know what life is all about? I am, said Jesus. Jesus is the centre of the gospel. And so if I'm not proclaiming Jesus, the real Jesus of the Bible, I am not proclaiming the gospel. And there's a challenge for you and me, isn't it? See, often when people tell me they've witnessed at work to their friends or family, what they've actually done is told someone that they go to church. Now look, it's great to have had a conversation with an unbeliever and to have told them that you go to church, but be clear, the gospel is not about the church. The gospel is about Jesus. I've not witnessed uh, to Jesus until I've spoken about Jesus. It's not even enough to have talked about God in some general sense. Um, Caroline and I have uh, just had a couple of weeks away and uh, we had uh, five days in Cromer. Uh, with my um, parents and obviously we took the children as well um, and uh, we, we was digging sandcastles and all sorts of things on Cromer Beach had fantastic weather one night we, we had a my parents looked after the children and we had a, 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 an Indian out you know we, we went for an Indian meal I mean we, you know you know anyway um, <laughs> suddenly realised that sounded a bit funny anyway we went for an email. In Cromer, nice, nice meal. I can tell you all about the, uh, the restaurant if you like. But as we looked around, there were these posters on the wall all about God. Words about God being everywhere and how we should love others because that's what God wants. We weren't in a Christian Indian takeaway place. We were, we were in a place that believed in some sort of God and had a Buddha there as well. Lots of people believe in God Until we talk about Jesus, we haven't talked about the gospel, do you see? 
And what are we to, what are we to tell of this Jesus? Well, verse 3 and 4, two things. Jesus is the son of David, you see it there, verse 3. Uh, and he is the son of God, verse 4. Uh, son of David, Jesus is fully human, he is the expected Messiah, he is the, the suffering servant, I think that's the point, David was a suffering servant. And so to, when we tell the gospel we're to speak of the cross, which is what Paul goes on to do, where Jesus uh, suffered to take the penalty for sin and bear the wrath of God. The, the first three chapters of this book, Paul explains how Jesus uh, needed to come because we were sinful, how we are under the wrath of God. Jesus is the son of David. In verse 4, Jesus is the son of God. Don't confuse that with God the son. The son of God in the Bible is is God's king in God's world. If you look at Psalm 2, you'll see the son of uh, of God is, um, is the king. And Paul says we know that he is son of God, that he is God's king because, verse 4, he rose from the dead. See, through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And so when we tell the gospel, we're to tell of the son of God who rose from the dead, tell of the resurrection. How his resurrection declares Jesus to be God's king and how through Jesus we too can escape the wrath of God overcome death and live in his eternal kingdom. Son of David, suffering Messiah, Son of God, Lord of all. By contrast, listen to the words of the Archbishop of Canterbury at the Lambeth Conference. Quote, This conference is a time when we can tell each other and tell the world about this first and most important job that Anglicans do. I'm going to stop the quote there. How do you think the Archbishop of Canterbury ended? the most important job that Anglicans do. How do you think he completed the sentence? What is the first and most important thing that Anglicans do? Do you think he said, proclaiming the good news of forgiveness of sin through the sacrificial death of Jesus? Do you think he said that? No. Do you think the Archbishop of Canterbury said, the first and most important thing that Anglicans do is tell a world under judgment that they can avoid the the judgment of God through the wrath-bearing death of Christ? Do you think he said that? Do you think our leading cleric said the most important thing that Anglicans do is speak of the certainty of eternity through the glorious resurrection of Christ? No. None of those things. Here's what he said. The most important thing that Anglicans do is being there so that we can say, Christ is here, you're not alone. Well, he got Christ in. That's, it's pathetic. People are asking questions that matter. They are asking, what happens when I die? When I go and see people who've just been bereaved, they don't want to know just you know, that I'm there and that, that Christ is there. They want to know what happens when you die. Christ is, is here and you're not alone is not the gospel. But then, of course, if you don't believe the Bible is the source of the gospel, then you won't know what to tell a dying and needy world, will you? the servant of the gospel, the source of the gospel, the centre of the gospel, and fourthly, the scope of the gospel in verses 5 and 6. Through him and for his name's sake, says Paul, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who were called to belong to Jesus Christ.
Oh, the RSV translates verse 5, from among all the nations. See, Paul was driven to take the gospel to the whole wide world. The gospel is for everyone, because everyone needs the gospel, Jew and Gentile alike, all alike are under sin, says Paul in chapter 3. Everyone is under God's judgment. Indeed, Paul would take the first three chapters to explain how we are all under judgment. And so everyone needs Jesus. Christian, do you look at everyone that way? Do you look at everyone who isn't a Christian and think to yourself, you need the gospel? Everyone that you know who isn't a Christian, do you think you are facing the wrath of Almighty God? One day you will die and spend eternity apart from Christ and in hell if you do not turn to Christ. Is that the way you think? Do you look at your friends and neighbours and colleagues and family who are not Christian and think to yourself, Christ died for you? See, that's what the good news is. You can be rescued from the bad news of God's judgement and that is for everyone. Isn't that wonderful? You and I have been entrusted with a life-saving message of hope for all. But as if the bad news of the gospel isn't bad enough, desperately some in positions of leadership in the Anglican Church are giving us even more bad news to report. They don't believe this gospel. So the Church of England newspaper from Friday the 1st of August quotes a bishop at the Lambeth Conference saying this, Surely we should be encouraging the African peoples to search into their past and rediscover their ancestral religions, which would be more suited to them and is in their genes. Can you believe it? This is a bishop in the Anglican Communion. You have to ask, has the church gone mad? Fortunately, no, the whole world and the whole church has not gone mad because another bishop at the conference responded to the idea that we should encourage all Africans to look to their ancestral religion like this. Listen to the irony in this. I love this response. If they were all animists who spent their time sacrificing human victims to the spirits, we should be encouraging them to revert to that. Come to think of it, everyone in Britain should be heading off to Stonehenge to pray to the sun god. Should we do that as the Church of England? Should we just say, actually, actually, if we really go back to our roots, we'd all be like, you know, going to Stonehenge? Let's go off to that. Should we do that? Friends, this is a sum of theological discontent. And we should be discontent with what we're hearing. These are issues that go to the very core of our being. And so it falls to us and to others who believe the gospel as revealed in the scriptures to expose the nonsense that is being believed by many of our leaders. If we don't stand up and account it, who will? We cannot keep waiting for someone else to do it. It falls to us to stand up and be counted to declare the true gospel as revealed in the scriptures for the sake of this nation and for the honour and glory of Christ because the stuff that is coming out of the bishop's mouths does not honour Christ at all. It is a disgrace. The gospel is here, clear, in these verses. And here it is, the message of God's gospel, rooted in the scripture, revolves round Jesus Christ our Lord, God's only Son, historically manifested, 
and it concerns the calling out of a people for God to belong to Jesus. People from all over the world, from every tribe and people and tongue. Let's make sure we proclaim it. Let's pray.